Hey everyone, this is Deacon Jim Runner from Forefront Church, and I'm so pleased to present to you my conversation with David Swanson, uh, the founding pastor of New Community Covenant Church, a multiracial congregation on the south side of Chicago. This was a fantastic interview, and it's educational and informative for so many people, but if you are white, I want you to pay specific attention to this interview because it largely revolves around his book, Rediscipling the White Church from Cheap Diversity, to true discipleship. And as the title entails, the conversation goes deep into what it means to actually truly be a diverse church, well beyond just the aesthetics of having a multiracial congregation, but what it means to serve, to bring empathy and equity to people of all ethnicities, of all races, of all backgrounds. And on top of that, the book is also a guide. It, it provides tangible steps in how people can basically serve, can bring that equity about, and how white people and white leaders in the church can step back and elevate the people whose experiences and stories are different from theirs. So it was a great conversation uh, to be a part of, and I really hope that you all gain something from it. So without further ado, here it is, my conversation with David Swanson. So, David, once again, thank you for uh, joining us today. You are the author of a, a wonderful book, Rediscipling the White Church, From Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity, and we will certainly be hitting on um, many points and questions about that. But for people who don't know you, the work that you're doing, I kind of wanted to start at the beginning and just kind of get a, a sense of what your story, what your faith journey is, especially kind of how you got into ministry. I know that as a, you know, you were a missionary kid, so I'm I'm especially curious as to what that was like for your upbringing and also specifically with a focus on if you thought, if you think that kind of helped, you know, set a, uh, set you up with like a, a diversive and inclusive mindset or if maybe instead it was sort of like um, it kind of gave you a sort of a narrow focus on what witnessing, you know, really was or, or, or what the... Um, the idea of it was, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let me just say thank you uh, first, Jim, for having me and uh, kind of greetings and blessings uh, to, to your congregation that, that you're representing. Um, always kind of aware in these conversations that we each belong to our own communities who are, are forming us and shaping us and, and that we somehow belong to one another as well as, uh, across, across space. So uh, yeah, really, really glad to be here. Yeah, you mentioned I'm a missionary kid. I did. I grew up in uh, Venezuela and Ecuador uh, from as you know as early as I can remember. I think I was two years old when my family moved, uh, you know, overseas, and then uh, we we moved to Southern California when I was entering uh, high school. I, I have to be honest. I, I had a really good experience, and I think in large part that just had to do with a relatively healthy family, <laughs> <laughs> healthy family dynamics. Um, you know, never felt as though you know, I had to compete with ministry for, you know, family's attention, uh, things that I think can be relatively common in, in you know, pastor's families or, or ministry families, pretty down to earth parents. Uh, lot, we had lots of, lots of fun together as a family. Uh, not to say there weren't, you know, difficult things about, about that, but a, as a kid, it was just sort of my normal and I was, I was grateful for it. Uh, and remain grateful uh, for it to this day, uh, to, to, the, to the extent that I, I grew up, um, you know, beginning to sort of imagine my, my own future vocational life and sort of assumed that ministry would be a part of it, um, not the church. Uh, I, I had zero interest in, in the church. Uh, and again, not because I had had some bad experience, but uh, church was like, 
kind of like benign, I guess, you know, it wasn't good. It wasn't bad. It just was like, it's what you did, but it's not where the action was. You know what I mean? Like if you wanted to have a life of meaning and significance and risk, uh, you're going to do that outside of the, outside of the church. Um, and it wasn't really until, uh, you know, later in life as my wife and I moved from North Carolina up to Wheaton, uh, in the, in the Chicago suburbs for some years of graduate school with the idea of maybe doing some kind of cross-cultural, um, mission or ministry that I began to be redirected to the local church, much to my chagrin and, and <laughs> my wife's chagrin as well, <laughs> was not part of the plan, um, you know, to get to the other part of your question in terms of how that background was, was formational for me, I do think it was significant. I, I think I, I grew up with a sense of being an outsider, uh, not in a particularly you know, heavy or, or always negative way, but just by virtue of, uh, you know, my, my, my accented Spanish, right. Uh, or, or, you know, my blonde hair as a, as a, as a, as a child, um, you know, was, was always made aware that, um, you know, we, we stuck out a little bit now had great friends, great relationships, but that gets into you as a, as a young kid, I think. And so I, I think in, in later years, uh, you know, in our own context of a multiracial church located in a, in a majority African-American neighborhood, I, I think I still carry that in my body to, to some extent, this, this memory of, of what some of that feels like. Now that, to be fair, that's, that's a very different experience than, you know, being a racialized minority person in, in this country, just, you know, related to power dynamics and so on. But uh, certainly that, that experience of my childhood has, has been very, very formational. And then when you eventually get into ministry, you also get into church planting. And <laughs> what, what was sort of the, the hope or the desire behind that? Because I know, um, you know, church planting isn't, isn't a bad thing forefront. It was, you know, a church plant at one point. And there are specifically, you know, an audience in the white church where like where church planting, like that's a noble commission, you know, and, and commission <laughs> and vocation is the word. But there also is somewhat of an implication of even mission work that you kind of get right. into in the church. So when you, when you got into that, what, what was it that you brought to that, that you wanted to see achieved? Yeah. So I had been serving as an associate pastor at a church in the suburbs, mm -hmm. uh, a great church, healthy church uh, pastor was really you know significant in my own sort of discerning ministry, really pushing against being a pastor uh, a super down to earth guy was, was really helpful in, in that way. But this was a majority white church, majority white uh, suburb, relatively affluent place. Uh, and I, I had no previous experience of suburban life and, uh, you know, just found it um, challenging. I'll, I'll put it that way. And um, now it was hard to feel at, at home. And my wife and I were spending a, a fair bit of time in the city, which was just a short train ride away and getting to know all of the city, especially the South side through some good friends, which is you know, predominantly African-American side of, of our city here in Chicago. And so when this opportunity opened up with a church uh, who, who was calling me as, as an associate here in the city, this was a church that was uh, multiracial, uh, predominantly uh, Asian American uh, and, and white, though also Latino and African American. Uh, it was a church you know, in, in the city and they were interested in starting new churches. So all of those things were you know, felt, felt significant and, and important to me. I don't know how developed my thinking around church planting was at that point. That would have been 2008-ish. Um, you know, I, I, I hadn't thought uh, real deeply about it uh, yet, but very quickly I, I was forced to because this church had already started thinking about planting a church here on the South side, the church that, that I'm now serving. And so 
the, the pastor asked me to do some of the behind the scenes work with no intention of, of me actually being the pastor of this church. And so that forced me just to you know get to know the neighborhood that we're in now, introduce myself to, to lots of the neighborhood leaders and the other pastors and started to get to, to know the history of Bronzeville, the, 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 the neighborhood that we're in now. And very quickly, it becomes apparent that um, this is a neighborhood that has in many ways been held together by local churches for generations. You know, this was the neighborhood where over 100 years ago, African-American people could move with a degree of safety uh, during the Great Migration. Uh, and there was very clear boundaries around the neighborhood of where you could, you know, where you could not move. And so churches of all different kinds served these uh, these migrants or these refugees from, from racial terror uh, as they made their way to Chicago and have continued to do so. I'm building uh, housing developments, you know, providing food, employment opportunities, and, and so on. And so I was forced really early on uh, to grapple with, well, why do we need, <laughs> why do we need to plant a church <laughs> in a community that has these, um, you know, incredible churches with amazing legacy? I mean, the church right across the street from where I'm sitting right now, West Point Baptist Church, has been in this community for over a hundred years, doing amazing uh, neighborhood ministry. They're they're letting us use our parking lot tomorrow for our outdoor worship service because they're not doing in-person stuff yet. We're doing some outdoor services. Um, and, 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 and that, that became a real point of growth for me to be able to acknowledge, you know, we are not in any way uh, starting this church to bring the gospel to this community, because frankly, this community has been living out the gospel of Jesus Christ in many different ways. If anything, we are, we're planting this church to join in the beautiful and good thing that has been happening for generation after generation after generation. This neighborhood doesn't need us, right? If anything, we need this community. We we need to be a part of this good thing that has been happening for, for so long. Now, as time has passed and, neighbor, and, and relationships have deepened, uh, partners and friends in the community, in the neighborhood have said, hey, new community, uh, here's the strengths that we see you bringing to the table. Here, here, here's what we see you being good at. So, so here's what we're asking you to take on in the collective work that we're doing together here in, in the neighborhood. But our posture for the first six years was we are not starting any ministry in the community. All we're doing is joining in what's already happening, which forced us to just make lots of friends, show up and sort of offer, you know, whatever it is that we could offer. And, and very quickly that led to some really deep and significant relationships. And now we find ourselves kind of part of an ecosystem in the, in the community where we're just one little part, right. Of all of these friends and partners doing uh, work and ministry together. I can talk more about that. It's just specifically relates around trauma here in our, our context, but um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, and I had to do a lot of kind of rethinking and reframe. Now, I still believe in church planting. Mm -hmm. uh, I, feel, I still think it's really important, but I do think that the starting assumptions are, are pretty significantly different than a lot of, of the motivations that we see in, in church planting today. Well, and it certainly, it, it seems very apparent that it, it's tied into this idea in the book of like to, to join in a community to be a disciple to come in to be a servant instead of to bring a, a, a service in, which is what a lot of, you know, mission trips are, you know, looking back in retrospect to those things that seemed very um, well-intentioned when we were younger, but looking back and seeing how problematic they are. 
Um, but even with that mindset and, you know, um, having the church set up in Bronzeville and, you know, living you yourself and, and your, your family kind of set up in this, in a diverse neighborhood, was there still hesitation or questions when it was asked, like, could you be the <laughs> pastor here? Because like, uh, listen, it, it's one thing to kind of be educated to take anti-racism training, racial right. reconciliation, but then right. it's another to be like, hey, can you be a leader here? Did What was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, hesitation is putting it really <laughs> mildly. <laughs> um, you know, so so assuming that people are listening and not watching this, I am a very white man, uh, right? This is this is uh, who I am, and so yeah, I I at, at that point I was convinced that for a a multiracial church to truly uh, uh, live into a mission of reconciliation, it had to be led by a person of color. And ideally, uh, in our context, an African-American woman or man, that was just like that was an unquestioned assumption. And and to the to the extent that a few of us from the sending church spent about a year uh, you know, trying to recruit that person uh, to lead this this church plant. The, the woman who is now our associate pastor, you know, she turned us down. Uh, a friend of mine who now pastors just to, kind of across the interstate, he turned us down. <laughs> uh, but again, that was just the operating assumption uh, in, in large part because uh, there are so many multiracial churches led by white people and white men uh, particularly. Why? Because in a racialized society, white men have been viewed as the leaders, as the pastors. And so there's something, there's a really significant reversal that can happen when you have a lead pastor of color. And, and, and again, in our American context, particularly a black person. And so I just thought, well, of course, to live into this mission, that's what's going to need to be the case. Well, Long story short, in the weeks uh, leading up to our first worship service, we still hadn't identified uh, this person. And so our sending pastor said, David, I, I think you, you need to fill this, this role. Um, and, and as unideal as that was, it was frankly probably the only way I ever would have been the pastor of this church for all of the, the different reasons that we just, uh, that I just mentioned. Um, and man, I struggled hard with it for a good three years, at least, um, like, like hard. I, I still wrestle with it to this day. Um, I, have, I had a, a spiritual director who I, uh, you know, would see every six to eight weeks. And, um, and this, that this would basically be all I talked about every single time. <laughs> see yourself as a black woman who was, you know, kind of born and raised in our community. And, um, you know, she would listen to me. She would empathize with me, and then her her question at the end of every every session would was was something along the lines of, "David, do you believe God has called you to this or not?" And you know, my answer went from a sort of like, "Yeah, maybe," to, "No, I think I, I really do think God has." But but what what shifted for me over those years was realizing that my call had nothing to do with my strengths, my wisdom, my expertise had everything to do with my weakness and, and my brokenness. And the fact that I was, you know, my, 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 my social location was not an asset to me <laughs> in, in this particular call. Um, and, and it was a kind of, it was a, an experience of being turned inside out time and time and time again. Um, 
Now we've tried to do all sorts of things strategically to live into this, this vision, you know, as it relates to our, our leadership and you know how we organize ourselves as a church. But for me personally, there was this real experience of the gospel over those years where I, I kind of encountered again, the fact that the, the gospel we proclaim is that God is strong in our weakness and wise in our foolishness. And I act as a white man, I've, just really honest with you, I haven't had a lot of moments to really experience that in my body, right? Like to actually in my bones, know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And I really did um, for, you know, for my own, for my own vantage point, I really had to experience that deeply. Um, I'm profoundly grateful for that now, mm-hmm. but it was a, it was a genuine death uh, that, that happened over the course of those, over the course of those years. Um, and this is what I tell white people who are, are considering this kind of ministry. That's what it involves. And if, if, if you're not okay with that, if you're not okay with that kind of existential death to self, uh, particularly white men, um, you will not be a trustworthy person in, in multiracial community. Um, anyways, there's a lot more to be said about that, but <laughs> it, it was a, a significant part of my, my journey for sure. So then I want to even talk a little bit about your your personal life as well, because as I said, you know, you and you detail this in your book, you and your wife made a deliberate effort of like, if, if we're going to serve here, we're going to have to live here as as well. And and I'm, I'm a little bit curious if you could talk maybe about the conversations and the decisions with with that and, and being a deliberate choice, because I'm, I'm going to quote from your book as well. And, and when you say, many parents, in fact, express a desire to have their ideals and parenting choices align. In spite of that sentiment, when it came to their own children, the common refrain I heard was, I care about social justice, but I don't want my kid to be a guinea pig. In other words, things have been working out pretty well for affluent white kids, so why rock the boat? And so it's it's one thing to say, like, I support these things, and it's another thing to live it out. And it sounds weird to even say, was it a struggle for you, which speaks to the privilege and the affluence and that sort of thing. But what were the conversations like for that with you and your wife? Yeah. 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 And I mean, this is, this is a really important question. I really am thankful that, that you're asking it because there, there is a kind of subculture that allows white people to be proximate to, uh, you know, racial justice spaces uh, proximate to uh, racial and ethnic diversity without in any meaningful way uh, kind of submitting our, and I use that word intentionally, submitting our, our privilege and power to those we are proximate to. And, and so there's a way we can feel pretty good about ourselves because we live in this diverse community. I go to this multiracial church. And yet at a, at a more granular level, nothing really has, has changed. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll just share some of our own, our own experience around this. Uh, when, we, when we planted the church in 2008, my wife and I had lived in, the, on, in this Northside community at the church that had called us into the city for about uh, 18 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this was a majority Latino, Latina community that was rapidly gentrifying. And we were looking to, to make our first home purchase. And we thought, okay, it seems like we might be a part of this church plant. So let's look on the South side. Now, at the same time, we were in the adoption process. Now, we had not uh, been able to conceive biologically and you know, pretty quickly decided we're not, we're not going to do the infertility route. That's not really for us. We had talked about adoption for a while. And um, 
through a, a, a series of events, we were connected with a birth mother uh, who was carrying a child uh, uh, who would be um, a multiracial child, um, you know, African-American, Filipino, and, and Puerto Rican. So we started having conversations with some, some of our very closest friends, um, a, a, a black uh, a husband and wife, and we, we kind of just laid ourselves before them and said, look, here's kind of where we are. Do you think that we uh, could parent this child? Uh, do you think that God might be calling us to, to parent this child? If you say no, we're going to close the door on this. Um, and they said, no, we, 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 think that, we think that God might be in this. And we had some, you know, just very kind of down to earth conversations about what that would look like and what that would mean for us, uh, right down to where we would live. And uh, these are friends who were kind of lifelong Southside folks. So they knew the Southside, knew the neighborhoods. Chicago is a very segregated city to this day. And they said, we would, we would strongly recommend that you all live in a, a diverse neighborhood um, where this multiracial, multiethnic child will grow up with a sense that he or she is not alone. Uh, the, he, they're already going to grow up with these white parents. So what can you do in terms of the neighborhood, the community itself that will kind of help foster healthy kind of racial and ethnic and cultural identity? That limited our, our options to one neighborhood <laughs> in Chicago uh, immediately, which is the neighborhood that we're in now, Hyde Park. And thankfully, that neighborhood borders against the neighborhood that uh, where our church was going to be was going to be planted. And so we've lived in our, our apartment there uh, since 2009. Our, our boys both go to the local elementary school, which is incredibly racially and ethnically diverse. Um, and we're very thankful for the fact that we did not try to make those decisions on our own, that we were uh, a part of a community that was able to really speak clearly and directly to uh, the really tender parts of our of our stories and our decisions uh, at that at that point, um, you know, there's times where I think oh, I really wish we lived right next door to where the church is located, um, right? Uh, but again, I always go back to no, this was a, a communal discernment um, for the good of our family and the good of our children, and we've experienced God's blessing in that just time and and, and time again. Bronzeville. Uh, is a majority black neighborhood. Its property is pretty desirable right now. So there's a lot of concerns about gentrification uh, in, in, in the Bronzeville community. Uh, different folks in our church have grappled with whether or not they should, you know, move into the neighborhood if they're not from there, particularly our Asian American and, and, and white people in our church. And those are complicated conversations. Those are really difficult, uh, you know, things to discern. And as best we can, we try to do that together uh, with folks who have been, you know, invested in the community for, for a long time. Anyways, Jim, that's a long answer to your question, but a, a glimpse into our process there. Sure. And there's, and even just based on that, there's so much more I want to know, but I know I've got a limited time with you and I've got a, a whole number of questions to ask, so I should probably move on, but I, and, and we should probably move on even, you know, into the book as well. Cause that's, you know, why, why we brought you here. So uh, <laughs> with, without me trying to, to kind of butcher it, could you talk a little bit about, um, about the book, your, the impetus behind it and just what you're hoping to, to, I don't want to say achieve with it, but just what, what led you to, to, to write it basically? Yeah, so I, this was not the book that I had in mind. I had something else in mind. I had begun to work on 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 it, but 
uh, in the lead up to the 2016 election, I, I found myself having these sorts of two different, very different experiences. And one was in our church and in our neighborhood, uh, where there was this keen sense of of threat uh, by the political rhetoric that was so loud in in those days. Uh, people in our church, people in 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 the in the Bronzeville community, articulating sort of how they were experiencing that political moment. I was also uh, working with some uh, Latino church planters at that time who themselves were serving undocumented uh, people. And so I was, I was hearing their stories and it was just very clear, right? Like um, th this, is a, this is a dangerous moment. Um, this, this rhetoric has implications on, on, on people's lives and, and they're feeling it, they're experiencing it as we then saw actually play out. Uh, and then I would step into these white Christian spaces and it was, man, just completely different, right? Mm -hmm. Just completely different. And I would, I would point this out in those white Christian spaces. I would say things like, hey, do you know how your sisters and brothers in Christ are experiencing this moment? And I would share some of the particular concerns and time and time and time again, I would be met with either complete disinterest or worse, uh, a kind of condescending, well, they don't really understand. They don't really get, right? And I thought, what in the world is going on here? And, and, then, uh, and then the man who became president got elected. And, and so many of these, these white Christians have said, look, he's not going to do all of that worse stuff that he, like, that's just rhetoric. He's not going to actually do that. And then he started doing this stuff, right? Like he started carrying it out. And he just got more popular with white Christians. Like his approval ratings just went up. And I remember sitting outside of this hotel in, in, in outside of Sacramento, um, kind of reading this polling. And, and for the first time, because I guess I'm kind of slow here, I, I had this thought, like, these white Christians are being discipled. They go to church, not all of them, but many of them go to church and their spiritual formation has led them to a point where they are so disinterested in the rest of the family in Christ who they belong to, that they are willing to sacrifice them on this partisan uh, altar, this ideological altar. And boy, that, that then just started uh, raising all sorts of questions to me. Um, why? Uh, or, or what is this actual formation that's happening? Why is it so ignorant and, and disinterested in the, the, the rest of the body of Christ? And then, you know, what would need to change? What would actually need to shift in these spaces? And so uh, interestingly enough, there were uh, enough people interested in, in those questions um, that, that actually then, you know, there, there's enough interest in, 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 a, in a longer project about this where pastors were starting to go like, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know. <laughs> Right, that, that this existed in our church. I didn't know that this level of, you know, in some cases, vitriol um, or, or kind of ideological entrenchment existed in our church, but they had no real idea of what to do, uh, in large part because we've only given, been given kind of partisan tools to, to go about this. And so to, to try to enter the conversation through the lens of discipleship felt like, okay, this might be a, a productive way to try to have this conversation um, to to begin giving folks an, a different imagination for, um, you know, for what a, a, a different future for the church might actually look like. And even even before the book, I'm 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 wondering about the planting the seeds uh, for the idea. I mean, can you think of moments or instances that kind of where you experienced or or observed what you you know call this cheap diversity in, in which you're kind of thinking like. Hey guys, this is this is this is not how you do it, and I right. I mean I mean to say guys because in the white church it often is white for men sure. who are leading sure. stuff. So were, were there things where you're just kind of like you can think back on 
you know, a point to point to get you to this point where it's like, this is, this needs to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good question. So a couple of things come to mind. Uh, you know, one was that it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's not okay anymore in white churches to, to want to be all white, right? Like it's not okay to say that, that thing out loud. And so in most white churches, uh, diversity is actually celebrated, even if you're not actively pursuing it. Like you, you'll say like, yeah, reconciliation, this is a good thing. Diversity is a, is a good thing. And yet the, uh, the, the, um, you know, in my experience and observation, any kind of diversity is pretty, pretty much a veneer over kind of white cultural dominance. And we started to see some reporting on that. We started to see some sociological work around this with people like Dr. Corey Edwards and others who were showing uh, the impact on the people of color in those majority white spaces and, and how that was having a detrimental impact on their own their own lives and, and spiritual experience. I remember this moment uh, leading up to the 2016 election where I was talking with a a Latina friend in ministry, and she was sharing how in her church context, uh, which was a you know Spanish-speaking congregation, they had been literally praying and fasting uh, in the lead up to the election because of this existential you know threat to, to their community. And I happened to know uh, you know the other churches in in that denomination that were within a very short drive uh, of, of this woman's church, and I knew that they were not praying and fasting. And I knew that they didn't even know that this other church was praying and fasting, right? I, I knew that the, the kind of disconnect was so deep and, and the experience of this moment was, was so profoundly different uh, that there was no real, you know, even, even sense of the anxiety and fear that was, um, you know, at, at play in that, in that sister congregation. So I think those were, those were some of the moments, both in terms of like a white church's experience of diversity, a sort of diversity as, uh, a, a metric of success, mm -hmm. um, and, and we could get more into that, as well as this real keen sense of like, why why is it that white Christians are okay in our racial segregation? Mm -hmm. Why is it that at the level of our desires and our imaginations, we don't imagine ourselves as belonging to uh, the, the the diverse body of Christ that, that that not only exists around the world to this day, but is actually clearly articulated in 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 the in the New Testament. Um, that was that was some of what I was trying to understand. And it speaks so much to, to that idea uh, and, and the difference, which people often don't discern, the difference between equality versus equity, where it's uh -huh. like, sure, come on in here, you're welcome, but then, okay, but what opportunities are you giving to these people? Right. What accommodations are you making for them? And people like to equate those two things, equality and equity, and, and they're they're actually vastly different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so there's a sociolo sociologist named Glenn Bracey who has studied uh, multiracial churches like mine, and, and so I, I don't exempt myself from any of this, you know, if anything, my own sort of, uh, you know, angst about, you know, my own like whiteness as a, as a pastor in a multiracial church drives a lot of this, and, and he uh, identifies something he calls race tests, uh, and so here's a multiracial church that, you know, sees itself as being diverse, uh, and yet a person of color comes and, and relatively quickly they face some sort of a race test where they have to decide, am I going to assimilate to white culture or am I going to be shown the door? Those are my two options. Um, and so one of the ways that we, we watch this play out is when there is a moment of, of kind of public racial trauma of which there are, you know, have been countless over recent years. And, and the person of color, oftentimes a black person experiences that they feel that very, very deeply, right? This, they're, they're identified with this moment. They're, they're, there's grieving, there's anger, there's rage. And then they come to church on a Sunday and nothing is said about it, right? It's not, it's not included in the prayers of the people. It's not mentioned in the pastor's sermon, nothing. 
And, and this person then says uh, maybe to a friend or turns to the person in the pew next to them, like, what's up with that? Like, how come? And, and here's the race test. The, the person is then told, why are you being political? You know, we don't do politics here. Or mm. how, how come you don't care about the gospel, right? So, so the, the, the person that was being communicated is, listen, you need to assimilate to, to our assumptions of the world, uh, to our uh, understandings of, of, of what's important. Or you, you, this is not going to be, you know, a, a home for you, and that's the kind of thing that I think has not generally been grappled with in um, in churches that claim to value uh, equality, you know, as, as you say, uh, because equality um, works really great uh, to maintain the status quo. You know, equality where like, like, like white people don't have to give up anything. We don't have to give up power. We don't have to, you know, interrogate our own identity in any kind of significant way, our own history and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and in and, 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 and many cases, that is, that is what has passed as success, you know, in, in, in previous generations. Thankfully, I think there are folks who are, are helping us to think a little bit more clearly about this. Uh, we are seeing more models of multiracial churches, which have very few white people even in them, right? The churches themselves are majority people of color, but, you know, coming from radically different cultural experiences and, and really living into the gospel in that way. So there's a lot of good stuff happening right now, but for the average white church, I think the starting point is still the, the, the kind of dynamic that you were just describing. I mean, as you, as you say in the book, white people can be exhausting. And I, I underline that. As I was yeah, yeah. That's it. from Austin Channing Brown's book, uh, <laughs> uh, which I, I would highly recommend to folks. Um, and, and I must admit, as I was gearing up um, for this and, and telling people about the interview, I, I must admit, I often misnamed the book as rediscipling the white church instead of or, or redisciplining the white mm -hmm. church instead of rediscipling. And, and but that actually led, led me to a question of just this, how how do we balance and I'm, I'm going to say we as in uh, white people specifically, I'm addressing is this to you now. Yeah. Um, how do we balance the calling out versus the guidance? Because after this has been going on for such a long time, the reaction and response rightfully so is is one of anger a lot. And, and, sure. and there's the there is the impl or, or not the implication, but there is the impulse to call these people out to cast them down and to kind of have a a, a disciplinary tone in response instead of more of like here is how we need to rework things instead. Yeah, yeah. man, <laughs> that is a really important question, <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you the way I grappled with that question writing the book was how do I keep white people at the table? Uh, without ever dishonoring uh, the community of color that I'm a part of. Um, that's really hard. It ends up uh, <laughs> uh, being very, very difficult. So, uh, but I think that's, for, for those of us called to reach white people, um, to, to make a difference in white Christian spaces, that's actually the task that's in front of us. So there is the prophetic edge. There always has to be the prophetic edge because uh, if not, then we're then we're probably not telling the truth. We're probably uh, we're probably lying in some way in order to accommodate that white person's fragile emotions. And we think, well, we can't. We don't want them to leave, so I'm not going to tell them the full truth. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I try to keep in the back of my head always is, is, is there anything that I'm saying or not saying here that would be dishonoring to the community of color that, that, 
uh, that I am a part of, that I belong to, that has, uh, you know, authority in, in, in my life. Uh, so I, you know, before the book was published, I, I made sure the book was in front of a few close friends and said, basically, hey, if there's anything here that I've missed or is dishonoring in any way, I, I need to know. Um, and yet our task is to reach these white people, those of us who are white, right? This is our responsibility. And, and so as exhausting as it might seem to those of us who are white, it's not nearly as exhausting as actually experiencing racism, right? As actually being on the receiving end of, of white supremacy. And, and so it's, I think it's, it's imperative that we keep that in mind and don't give up on this. So I'll, I'll say one last thing. I have a, a friend named Dominique Gilliard, uh, who for your uh, uh, listeners has written a really important book called Rethinking Incarceration. Mm. And Dominique likes to say to pastors who are engaging their churches in these conversations, he likes to say, don't let the thing you cannot say to your people today be the same thing you cannot say to them a year from now. Now, this for me is super helpful, right? Because it it's, it's acknowledging that white people have been conditioned to, to be intolerant to the truth. <laughs> we have been formed to not be able to hear uh, all of the truth and, and to crumble when we do encounter the truth. So, so let's acknowledge that uh, for, for folks who are pastors or, or leaders, or, or maybe just a member of a family, like our responsibility is to figure out how much of the truth can, can these, these folks handle, but then we don't leave them there. And that's the difference, right? Like, okay, so if I can only say this much today, then what do I need to do over the next few months so that I can say this much to them six months from now, and then this much to them a year from now. That I think is the task that that's in front of us so that we're, we're never, um, we're never allowing uh, the, the frailty and the immaturity uh, of whiteness to win. We're acknowledging it. We're, we're meeting it where it is, but then we're going to do the, you know, in my, in my language, the discipling work, the formational work to ensure that down the road, more and more and more of, of the truth can be engaged with. I love that answer. And I also love that in the book, you make no secret. In fact, you continuously reemphasize this is going to be uncomfortable. You are going to put yourself in, in positions of discomfort because being honest with these stories that they're hearing and also honest about what we have done wrong is, yeah, no one likes to have their truth challenged. No one likes to have their worldview challenged. And this is all about challenging that. Um, and I know, I mean, the book is wonderful because it, it's, it's you know, if people haven't read it, and I highly recommend you should, it, it is practical approaches to how do we approach, you know, how do we first recognize what we've been doing as, a, as the white church, as white Christians, and how do we change practices, liturgy, that sort of stuff mm -hmm. I think is very valuable. Um, but I, I, I'm also wondering then, how do we start the conversation, whether it's pastors or even people? I'm thinking mm -hmm. back, we've mentioned 2016 how many people, white people, were afraid to go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas right, just right. like, I don't know how to engage in these conversations. I don't know how to bring it up. And they err on the side of like, well, this is going to be, and I'm guilty of this as well. Like, I don't want to bring it up because it's uncomfortable. Right. And I, I want to keep the harmony with my family, whether it's the actual literal family or or the figurative one. How do we mm -hmm. start these conversations? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that's the Thanksgiving thing is very very <laughs> real. Uh, I know I know this firsthand. 
Well, for those of us who are Christians, I, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that our family is not limited to our biological family. Mm. And, and this is one of the hard teachings of Jesus, but also one of, for me personally, one of the most uh, comforting ones, that in Christ, I have new sisters, new brothers, new mothers, new fathers. Um, and, and, I, and, and that that's really a true thing. Like not, mm-hmm. not even like spiritual. So no, like this is your family now through the, through the Eucharistic blood of Christ, through our shared baptismal waters, we have been united with a new family. And so keeping the peace takes on a different connotation, right? Like if going home at Thanksgiving and keeping the peace comes at the expense of others of my family members, that's a false peace. Mm. That's actually a form of oppression, right? This is this is what the Old Testament prophets say, you know, about the false prophets. You 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 proclaim peace, peace when there is no peace. And and I think that's that's if we're not careful. Um, for the sake of a false peace, we can actually advance an agenda that ends up being very oppressive to mm. others of our of our family members. So that's sobering to me, and I, I I need I need that right. I need to remember I need to remember that. So that's one thing I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that, uh, and this I have heard this from mentors of color time and time again. There are things that I can say as a white person where that will be heard that could not be said by that that friend of color because that person's going to be written off. Oh, you're just playing the race card or whatever goofy, you know, response, you know, that, that, that elicits. <laughs> uh, and, and so this is part of my way of loving that sister or brother who feels like there are places I cannot go and speak that truth. Okay. So one of the ways that I, I can, I can love you is by, by speaking that truth in a way that, you know, maybe will be heard simply by virtue of, of my racial identity. That's incredibly unfortunate that that's the reality that we're facing, uh, and yet it is. And so there's a way in which I can I can kind of take that uh, take that responsibility and, and show love in that way. Third thing I'd say is that um, in the Christian tradition we we bear witness to the truth. Um, it doesn't mean that we ourselves can ensure that people will will hear the truth or that the truth will will take root, but we bear we bear witness to it. It's Christ is always the one who does the work of transformation. That's not our responsibility, but we are we are witness. We say, here's what I have seen. Here's what I have experienced. We testify to to the truth that we have seen and experienced. And so around the Thanksgiving table, you know, maybe the point is not to to argue someone into, you know, understanding it or debating. Maybe we just, we're testifying, right? Like we're bearing witness to what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have experienced. And frankly, for a lot of white people, they're not in relationship with anybody who could actually do that. They're not in relation with anybody who can bear witness or testify. So uh, again, like rather than the posture being like, let, let me, let me convince you to vote for somebody over the course of Thanksgiving meal. Maybe the posture is I'm going to bear witness to the truth. I'm going to, I'm going to testify to the realities experienced by my sisters and brothers in Christ. I'm going to testify to the truth of, of, of the gospel imperative, you know, for, for justice and, and then trust that anything that actually is going to change here is going to be the work of Christ in somebody's, in somebody's life. So I, for me, that's a way of like not letting ourselves off the hook. Like we, we have a, a responsibility, but also not taking on to ourselves uh, the responsibility to change anybody because we simply don't have that power. And when we think we do, we end up, you know, manipulating people. I'm reminded uh, from that answer of a, a sermon we had here at Forefront a little while back of the, the difference between 
um, making peace and keeping the peace and how those two things could be very different and how actually making peace often can sometimes feel like the opposite, or at least depending right. on what side you're on. Um, and also you playing the race card, I just, I was reminded, I was digging back through the notes of when I interviewed Drew Hart and he had a wonderful quote in his book. At the heart of the accusation that someone is playing the race card is the suggestion that African-American interpretation of an event is unduly subjective yeah. or has been manipulated, which yeah. Um, yeah. is what, and if, you know, anyone hasn't listened to that episode, by all means do it and also seek out his book, Trouble I've please, Seen. Yeah, please do. Um, and, and I'm, I'm also curious as to what you think. I mean, when we start on this journey, whether it's a church, whether it's people, is it reasonable for us to expect resistance or at least skepticism from our BIPOC siblings because of just like, mm. listen, history has shown this is not the direction that we are moving in, that this is not our tendency. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I fully expect that, that skepticism. And, and I, I receive that skepticism as a, as a sign that you are being honest with me uh, because <laughs> under no uh, interpretation of American history. Should there be any reason to believe that white people are going to kind of suddenly wake up and, 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 and do right here? Um, I was actually on a, on a call with a bunch of Episcopalians uh, yesterday in Texas, and there was one uh, African-American uh, clergy as a part of it. And he voiced this, you know, he, he was like, why, why should we actually, he said, he said, look, I see a lot of white people being way more active than they were ever in my memory, but why should we believe that this is going to be sustained? And, and my answer is, I don't think you should. Like, I, I really don't, I don't think there's any reason to, to believe that it will be sustained. Um, and, and as a white person, if you're not okay with that, if you're not okay living in that space, then you've got some maturing to do. Uh, if, if you need to be accepted, if you need to be affirmed, if you need someone to pat you on the back because you have kind of woken up a little bit, then, then, then you've got a lot of maturing to do here. And, and because again, we've, 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 again, once again, kind of turned it around and made it about us, right. Made it about our own experience, our, our own, our own emotional engagement with this. I, I actually really have come to appreciate being in those skeptical spaces. Cause I feel like those are the spaces that are dealing in reality. Um, you know, and, and that's what I need as a white person who is still relatively, you know, young in, in this journey, I need to be with people whose eyes are wide open to what's actually real and what's actually true. Um, you know, in, in that same 2016 election, we had the choice between somebody who thought we needed to go back and make America great again. And somebody who thought America was already great. And it was so good for me to be in a community where it's like, no, oh, that's that's all baloney, right? That's 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 all bogus. Uh, none of the neither of those visions is rooted in uh, the truth and and rooted in 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 reality. And and so I I actually think that um, if if as white people in this work we can come to welcome that skepticism, come to see it as a gift to us that we actually get to be in relationships with people who are, who will tell us the truth. Who will be honest with us, man, that's an incredible gift, right? That's an act of love that's being shared with you. And, and so simply to, to receive that, to take that in, to allow it to form you, to allow it to ground you, to allow it to kind of pull your head out of the clouds and out of the sky and out of like the American utopian visions that we're so prone to, to something that's more true and more real. Well, 
man, there's some good stuff that can start happening then. Um, but that's part of the dying to self too, right? Like mm-hmm. that's uh, cause that, that, that American exceptional thing, as much as we would say, no, nah, no, no, it's, it's in all of us to some extent sure. and, uh, get a, a conversion to get it out. <laughs> and then of course there's, unfortunately there's always the, a danger of, of overcompensation as well, or, or kind of over enthusiasm. And, um, and I had a question specifically from, the chapter where you're writing about um, relationships to places. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to quote you again uh, to kind of get into it. But you say, when I think about this deficiency, which is, you know, rarely considering relationships to places, uh, when I think about this deficiency, when I, or, or sorry, I think about this deficiency when I visit other churches, there is rarely anything in our church buildings that would indicate where a church is located. Oftentimes our sanctuaries have the feel of a franchise. Nothing in them would describe to an out-of-town guest what is distinct about the place and its people. And I, you know, forefront, uh, we, you know, because it's New York City, there's not really a whole lot of uh, space for a church. We have a, a venue, so we do, uh, you know, every service we start out with, you know, we're coming from you from New York City, the land of the Lenape people. We try to have that acknowledgement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then if some if people are kind of getting over enthusiastic what would you caution to uh, you know to avoid appreciation deforming into reappropriation and that idea of once again well-intentioned white people taking something that was and turning it into something for them yeah that's a deep question <laughs> that's, a, that's a very deep question and i think the way we would think about that might differ a little bit in a multiracial setting uh and in a majority white a majority mm. white setting but that that uh that tendency towards appropriation is deeply embedded in white culture and we we, we see it happening yeah you can just watch that that tendency play out in all, all sorts of predictable but nonetheless destructive kinds of ways um yeah, so I, I um, okay, so a couple thoughts. One, there's no such thing as a woke white person. That, <laughs> that is a specimen of human that doesn't exist. Uh, we, we will always be waking up. And I, I think a, a, a church culture that can keep that at the forefront is, is going to be helpfully forming white people to understand uh, our, our own lack of sight our own ability to, 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 to see and to interpret clearly. Uh, the fact that, that, that we're like the, 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 the man who was blind, right. Who Jesus kind of heals the first time is like, well, I kind of see trees walking around. That's sort <laughs> of what it means to be a, a white person who's growing up in this area, I think, uh, which ought to engender a profound amount of humility. Um, now, alongside of this is the is the need for a, a deepening spiritual life that allows that white person to be okay not arriving. And I think it's the desire to arrive that often leads to that kind of appropriation. Like, so, so now here are the indicators, here are the signifiers um, in, in the language of our culture right now. Here's the virtue signaling that I can do to show you that I you know, I have arrived or I am in this place. I'm, I'm not one of the bad white people. I'm one of the good white people. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a ever deepening spiritual life that allows that white person to say, actually, I've not arrived and I, I won't arrive. I, I will always be on the way. I will always be uh, on, on the journey. And, and I'm okay with that. I, I, I know uh, who I am in Christ. I know the community that I, I'm a part of and that I belong to. And so despite the fact that I'm waking up, 
to what whiteness has done to me as a person, despite the fact that I'm waking up to all that had to be given away, all of the gifts that had to be given away in order for me to be white, I will refuse the tendency to grasp, to appropriate something uh, because I have this ever deepening spiritual life in community that roots me, that anchors me in this place, that gives me great gifts and, and allows me to refrain from, from some of that, that dangerous uh, appropriating tendencies. Um, and, and, and you, you mentioned the chapter on place. I actually think that place can be one of those gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the American, you know, tendency for middle-class people is to see ourselves sort of hovering above place, not being rooted to any kind of place. And there's a predictable trajectory over the course of that middle-class person's life of where they're going to move to, where they're going to end up, what the draws are going to be. This job pays a little bit more. This climate is a little bit better. This graduate school is a little bit more prestigious. That kind of causes us to, to, to move about in a way that, 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 that indicates we think ourselves unencumbered by place. The, the posture of, of a, of a kind of a mutual submission uh, of place and person to one another, uh, a, a, an expectation that God has called people to care for place and the place to care for its people. Uh, this can be over time, I think, one of the really significant anchors for that white person uh, to, 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 stay, to stay put in the, in the place of tension. I, I think that I'd go back to something you you asked about earlier in terms of uh, kind of the healthy skepticism uh, that 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 BIPOC folks would have for white people like ourselves. I I think we need to hear those of us who are white. We need to hear in that an invitation um, and, and a real a real serious invitation. Don't don't hear that skepticism as an as a well why even try why even engage. Uh, hear in that a real genuine. Here's here are people who have been willing to tell you the truth about their experience. That's a gift. So what would it look like? What would need to happen today so that you're continuing to say yes to that invitation 10 years from now, 20 years from now? It's not atypical for a younger white person to to dive in deep, you know, into this stuff for you know a handful of years and then what you got to grow up. You, you, you got to get serious. Um, it's not uncommon for folks to, to step out of this work and kind of step onto a very predictable treadmill. And I, I don't think that's inevitable, but I do think it requires that we make some decisions at, at a moment like this, uh, significant decisions, anchoring decisions that will allow us to continue to say yes to, to the call of Jesus, uh, despite right? Despite what, what might come our way. Um, and, and again, I feel like my testimony is it's so good. Uh, the work is challenging. The work is difficult, but I would not trade it for anything in the world. Like I, like, do I want to go back to my mostly white segregated life? Not, not a chance in the world. No way. And, and this is, this is what it means to say yes to Jesus. Is it, it, it feels like death. Uh, but there's always resurrection on the other side of it. That's so much better than anything we could imagine. 